Anytime you live in a society supposedly based upon law, and it doesn't enforce its own law because the color of a man's skin happens to be wrong, then I say those people are justified to resort to any means necessary to bring about justice where the government can't give them justice. But when a black man strikes back, he's an extremist. He's supposed to sit passively and have no feelings, be nonviolent, and love his enemy, no matter what kind of attack, be it verbal or otherwise, he's supposed to take it. But if he stands up and in any way tries to defend himself, <laughs> then he's an extremist. Election night, like, that's crazy. The world all. is burning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I hope they're listening to Race Capital. Grab your liquor and your ballots, y'all. Because... <laughs> uh, it's going to yeah. be an easy night. Well, it's Wednesday morning, November 4th, 10 a.m. right here on Race Capital. With me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. Kalia Harris. And me, Naomi Isaac. And we're waking up in the new world this morning. Yeah. How does it feel? <laughs> it feels like the last blue wave. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm seeing a lot of cages still. Yep. Well, why don't we just dive right on in to the Race Capital reframe? This week on the Race Capital Reframe, we'll start it off with some relatively good news. Peer Recovery Specialist seeks to help LGBTQIA people struggling with addiction by opening a new sober home. Chantel Hammonds, co-founder of Peter's Place, opened up over the summer, a recovery housing and support organization designed to help people of color who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, or asexual. Now, yesterday was election day, y'all, and Virginia's seven-day average for daily new COVID-19 cases is now 1,324. My God. That pushes us past the daily number of new cases we've seen during the previous peaks in late May, which was 1,195, in August, which was 1,198. And again, to remind everyone, here we are in November, up to our highest numbers of 1,324. What's also terrifying is Bree Ambrose, who is a longtime social justice advocate and executive director of the Neighborhood Resource Center of Greater Fulton, has secured a restraining order against candidate for city council, Mike Dickinson, saying that Bree has been harassed over social media and threatened in person. It's interesting, Chelsea, because Mike Dickinson was also the leader of the Trump train that terrorized MDPC which is Marcus David Peters Circle this past weekend. But what was really interesting about that, if folks uh, were on the ground, you saw that the police had absolutely no concern with containing this active white supremacist shooter, as well as folks who were hitting people with their vehicles and inciting just very terroristic, violent messages, like running through, roaming through the streets. Like the police showed up to make sure that Black folks weren't being too rowdy in the face of somebody literally being shot, having shots aimed at them, which is crazy and really set a precedent right before the election. And I mean, it's something that we've been seeing the police do all summer. So these so-called Trump train participants, they have been watching and learning this behavior through the police who have modeled it all summer, running their SUVs into people, hitting them with rubber bullets, any of those things. So Naomi, just for listeners, since we're going into this a little bit more, tell listeners what happened at MDPC. 
So folks were gathered in MDPC um, celebrating the Day of the Dead, as well as just gathering as they normally do to celebrate our ancestors and those who have been victims of police brutality. And the Trump train, this large group of Republicans, were traveling in a car caravan, circling the block, inciting terror, as I said before. And folks were obviously angry that, you know, this kind of presence is allowed in the city so openly after we've been terrorized for months, not even going to the same extent as these Republicans, you know, just getting like shooting people, killing people, murdering people in the streets. So people were obviously offended and it got a little heated. And this car caravan decided to start firing shots. Mm. And then they sped off. They ran across the median, scaring people. Right. So then they sped off and the police showed up. They arrived at the scene. You know, they had several dozens, like they had dozens of officers present, not doing anything. I didn't see them investigating anyone. You know, they were talking with the crowd, but kind of just making jokes as they normally do, not taking the situation serious. And it's just people were like, you know, when are the cops going to start shooting at us? And we have to realize that when they let these people get away, that is them by way almost shooting at us too. Those are their cousins. Those are their comrades in arms. Those are their brothers and they're getting away with it. And Race Capital is following this story and plans to bring our audience another exclusive interview with Frank Hunt, who was targeted this past weekend. So stay tuned. Continuing with local news, regional schools are all deciding whether they're going hybrid learning, except for the Richmond City public school system, which looks like they will be staying virtual. And this past week, a Chesterfield school board member was harassed on Twitter by reopeners. Dot Heffron posted an image of a message that said, I dissent, honoring the late RBG. The post also came after the school district's health committee approved sending more students back to part-time in-person instruction despite state guidelines that call for a pause when cases increase. And as we just heard, cases have increased. Chesterfield right now is seeing an exodus of teachers, instructors, staff, probably one of the largest that we've seen in the county. And I would say it's directly related to these decisions by the administration to continue to open the schools. Sounds like more women out of work, out of the workforce to me as well, for their own safety and security and for our family's safety and security. Local reporting in Hampton shows us that five police departments have MRAPs, a type of military vehicle, but reports say that none were used during the mass shooting of 2019. But almost a year later, the department rolled it out during the Black Lives Matter protests. To my co-hosts, Kalia and Naomi, are you surprised that Hampton, right here in Virginia, are using military vehicles on Black Lives Matter protests, but not on mass shootings? Not at all. It's almost like the police are not here to stop crime, but suppress protest. Mm. In other news, Virginia ranks worse in the nation for quickly processing unemployment claims that need staff review, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. People are falling into a black hole. I mean, it's no surprise, as we often say that, you know, Virginia is the best in the nation for business, but the worst for people. And we've seen that they are, especially here in Richmond, we just saw that they were trying to process evictions. Landlords are still trying to evict people. Meanwhile, people literally have no income. And we see that the federal government is not committed to providing us. Some people got $1,200 for almost going on like 11 months now. It's absolutely insane. 
Yeah, and anyone who has been unemployed or is underemployed at this point, we know how the VEC is doing. Like, it's really hard. You have to go in every week and put in your application and hope that you get the money that you're supposed to. And now we're just seeing that, in fact, we're not imagining this. It has actually just been really slow. And so many people have no other alternatives. You know, so many people are depending on unemployment to make those ends meet because, you know, jobs are not coming back. And there is no economic cushion for middle class and low income people, especially Black and Indigenous and Latino low income and middle class folks. And so it's just so violent to watch Virginia continue to fail our working class people. In Virginia, over the past year, a number of rural counties have mulled resolutions that would officially endorse the assembly and training of local militias. At least three counties have approved them. What do y'all think about this? I feel like it exposes the the larger economic plan of a lot of rural counties and in investing in prisons and militarization in order to boost some kind of economic gain. But it doesn't help anyone in the communities, it's only helping the state. And I'd be really interested to see how many other counties have these types of resolutions after the election results are all in. Yeah, I think people should pay close attention to not only the militarization, but even new jails and prisons and immigrant detention centers that are being built and funded. And historically, this is no surprise because we know that white folks deputize themselves to then go and enact terror on communities. This is how we got local police. So speaking of police, the General Assembly is claiming reform. As this past week, Governor Northam signed a bunch of new bills, enabling things like civilian oversight, banning chokeholds, and also banning no-knock warrants. Before we head to national news, a recommendation for a long read by Race Capital brought to us by a partnership between the Virginia Center for Investigative Journalism, VPM, and James Madison University. The report contains critical information on Virginia farm workers, their employers, and the lack of protections during this pandemic. Moving into national news, the Supreme Court on Monday threw out a Fifth Circuit decision that allowed a Louisiana police officer to sue the organizer of a Black Lives Matter protest for injuries that he supposedly suffered at the demonstration. A federal judge dismissed the officer's case against Maryland-based Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson for failure to state a claim. Y'all, that's actually a pretty big decision in terms of organizers and charges. I mean, it was a pretty crappy charge in the first place. Yeah, to think that organizers could be responsible for injuries that an officer says that they suffer at a demonstration when we know that officers say all the time that they sustain injuries that, you know... Yeah, They are responsible for the mass sustained injuries of Black and non-binary and trans people when they tear gas us? Come on. I'm going to say, though, I am shocked to see that come out of our federal Supreme Court. In other news, internal documents have revealed some pretty alarming COVID-19 hospitalization data that the government has tried to keep hidden from us all. The interesting part about this national story is that our very own city, Richmond, is on the map for the amount of ICU beds that are quickly filling up, which is a huge indicator for the pandemic of outbreaks and hotspots. 
Well, Amphilia PD swarmed an innocent woman's car, broke all her windows, dragged her out, and kicked the living crap out of her, injured her baby son, and then the FOP lied on social media that they had rescued the kid. They used the photo and incident as propaganda, but the mom said hell no and got a lawyer. You gotta tell me this one more time. So the police department broke into her car, ravaged her and her baby, and then did what? Yeah, so then they lied about it as propaganda. They had said the police union alleged on social media, Facebook, of course, in a post that a lost black toddler was rescued by those Philly cops when an actuality what had actually happened was that they broke open the mother's SUV and snatched him, kidnapped him during an arrest gone wrong. Cops lie. Of course, they always lie. And this just proves that the police really cannot be reformed because even amidst global uprising, as we always say, they are still killing us. In fact, the rate is has only increased this year during 2020, which is insane because we've been outside protesting against police violence for an entire year. And we've been inside quarantine and you're still killing us. Exactly. We can't even go nowhere. And y'all, they still manage to kill us. Yeah, and for context, the uprisings in Philly right now are particularly centered around the murder of Walter Wallace Jr. And recently, the Philly City Council voted 14 to 3 to ban the use of tear gas and non-lethal weapons used against demonstrators during the uprisings. Well, look at that common sense legislation. Yeah, it's almost like you see the violence, you stop it. (laughs) Mm, Too bad that doesn't happen here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy. No. Absolutely not. And coming out of North Carolina, a march to the polls ended with the police gassing the protesters. The governor has now condemned this choice by law enforcement. I read that this was a march that they've done for quite some time. This is a regular march that they've had permits, everything, and they still got gassed. Yeah, it's not enough for governors to condemn this state terror. They hold all the powers. So don't just talk about it, be about it. We got to start seeing some action. Yeah, and historically, we know that civil rights protesters created these type of actions, such as sold to the polls or marching to the polls because of the voter intimidation that occurs that we're seeing now with the Trump supporters that are swarming people's cars, the police that are gassing organizers, whether it's in New York or here in North Carolina. It's something that has been used time and time again to intimidate and suppress the Black vote. And in international news, a follow-up on our coverage out of Lagos, Nigeria. The CCT cameras at the Lekki toll gate, where people were shot while protesting two weeks ago, did not capture the whole evening, according to the boss of a company who runs the gate, Abayumi Omuwasan the managing director of the Lecky Concession Company, told the judicial panel, which is investigating the events of October 20th, that the CCTV had stopped recording at 2000 hours. He said a facility the camera was linked to had been tampered with and had been burnt. Ooh, shady, shady. Yep. So the panel will continue to review this information and have more information out this Friday. Very interesting. Tampered and burned. It kind of sounds like they turn off body cams to me. Yeah. And just to remind our listeners, Amnesty International said that the military in Nigeria needed to be investigated for their role in the murder of dozens of people on that gate just a few weeks ago. So this is just more to this story. And it's getting more and more insidious as we go. Wow. All right. That does it for the race capital reframe. What a week. What a week. 
Stay tuned for what we got next. You f***ed up the kitchen, then you should do the dishes. Burning down plantations, uh. Ain't no parking, I don't need no validation. I like sage when I'm in a rage, uh. I don't need permission, I got my intuition. Hands dirty, mind clean. A different mission with a new dream, uh. We kicking out the old regime. Liberation, elevation, education. I said America, use a lie. I wrote a letter to the New York Times recently, which didn't get printed, <laughs> which is getting to be my rapport with the New York Times. They said that it was too personal. What it, uh, what it concerned itself with was I was in a bit of a stew over the Stalin. Because when the Stalin was first announced, I said, oh my God, now everybody's going crazy, you know, tying up traffic, what's the matter with you know, who needs it? And then I noticed the reaction, starting in Washington and coming on up to New York among what we're all here calling the, the white liberal circles, which was something like, you know, you Negroes act right or you're gonna ruin everything we're trying to do. You know? <laughs> And that got me to thinking more seriously about the strategy and the tactic that the Stalin intended to accomplish. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times. I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, who was, uh, you know, real American type American, successful businessman, uh, very civic-minded and so forth, it was the sort of American who put a great deal of money, a great deal of his really extraordinary talents, and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after goals. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted area where no Negroes were supposed to live and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do, and it eventually uh, resulted in a, a decision against restrictive covenants, which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. But the problem is that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. My father died a disillusioned exile in another country. That is the reality that I am faced with when I get up and I read that some Negroes my own age and younger say that we must now lie down in the streets, tie up traffic, stop ambulances, do whatever we can, take to the hills if necessary with some guns, and fight back, you see. Can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? It isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication, of transformation of their situation, from petition to the vote, everything. We've, all, we've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827, you see? They've been doing everything, writing editorials, Mr. Wexler, for a long time, uh, you know. And now the charge of impatience is simply unbearable. 
children wait in the wild. God is gonna trouble. God's gonna trouble the what we find the need to articulate here is the political situation in the U.S. While increasingly violent and volatile and rapidly developing, is a clear continuation of the policies that have been enacted since the Civil War. Essentially, the Civil War never ended. The struggle against chattel slaveries from neighborhoods demolished by war on drugs to the prison industrial apparatus and Resistance to U.S. expansion across the continent is the same war being waged today in another form. The primary question then is how do we organize to abolish slavery and stop the expansion of the slave project? The state, in complicity with white supremacist organizations, has done everything in its capacity to ensure that the relations of slavery were entrenched in U.S. political, social, and economic life. In doing so, it ensured that its slave populace and other targeted populations would remain in bondage, trapped in its carceral apparatuses. This is race capital, and today we burn down the American plantation. Wait in the water, wait in the water, children, wait in the water, gods are gonna trouble the water. You're listening to Race Capital, and this is our first book talk. Today we discuss Burn Down the American Plantation a call for a revolutionary abolitionist movement. The synopsis reads, The foundation of the political conflict today does not begin with the rise of the far right, but is situated in the context of the U.S. Civil War, a war that never actually resolved the social contradictions at the heart of American society. Slavery has never ended in the United States. Instead, it was reinstituted after the war, expanded through mass incarceration and normalized through the deputization of civil society against black people. The expansion and acceptance of terror in American society has now turned against many other segments of the population, culminating in the conflicts we see today. Following the lineage of the black struggle from Nat Turner to the Black Liberation Army, we can learn from the most revolutionary traditions of our society. We look at how current projects can build 21st century underground railroads when coupled with a militant strategy. Could the formation of these new political projects catapult us out of the cycle of protests and help us create revolutionary organization? For insights, we'll analyze the Rojava revolution the most advanced anti-state struggle in the world as we, as we chart out an insurgent direction for anarchists organizing today. We ask you to join in our mission to burn down the American plantation and with us build the revolutionary abolitionist movement. You're listening to WRIR 97.3 and this is Race Capital. So here we are for our first Race Capital book talk, the first of many. Welcome Yay. And it's interesting because we really decided just to read a book together. It wasn't fully intended to do a book talk for the show, 
but we did think it was just important for us to be reading and thinking and, and really consuming some of the same information. And I was like, well, why not do that with our audience? Yeah. And once I got all these tabs in my book, y'all said y'all had highlights too. We had to have a little study. <laughs> Professor Harris over there with the tabs and stickies. <laughs> So this book, y'all, I I found it to be so enlightening and refreshing at a time where I feel that a lot of folks are throwing around the word abolition, but it really grounded me again and what we're working for and where we're trying to go. And I feel it gave me a few tools to add to my abolitionist tool belt. And I mean, in under what, 80 pages, this tiny handbook really does just like you said, Kalia, clarify so much of the rhetoric and narrative that we've heard, as well as give us goals to what we're working towards, as well as what is the short-term, long-term, and as well as what are some of these alternatives that everyone keeps telling us we can't imagine. Right. I really love the way that this book breathes life into militancy and you know, it's kind of pays homage to the radical resistance of the youth movement. It was actually created by Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement, which was an organization founded on an HBCU campus by Black militant radical students who worked with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, worked with SNCC, worked with Malcolm X. And so as an HBCU student myself, I feel like a lot of the times we're we're compelled to take more of a neoliberal stance and, you know, be a little bit more passive. And so this kind of grounds me in my values, I think, more. You know, one thing as a clinical social worker that I took from this was the alternative of how we are going to replace the carceral system and punishment and really coming together in the idea of circle that we don't throw anyone away. And it grounded me as well as in my own tools that I've used as a clinical social worker or just as a community member of when we don't give up or when we you know, don't turn that blind eye to someone. And it reminds us the simplicity of circle and because you can't not see anyone. You, If you throw someone out, you're gonna break that circle and you're gonna break your community. And that was one part of, of this book that, again, in a very few words, I was able to interpret and hear so quickly of what we can reimagine. And it gave tangible examples of how mediation looks in community that is in struggle, which for me, sometimes when we talk about where we're trying to go, we're building towards tangible examples are very helpful. You know, it's a lot of imagining that we do. And so to see people in communities all over that are struggling both with the concept of mediation, but also struggling through it together. That was refreshing to me because we've been targets of the nonprofit industrial complex, especially this summer. And so in trying to really figure out some way to create restorative or transformative justice, that that to me was something I was studying with this book. Right. And it really brings up brought up to me, you know, the question of reactionary justice versus versus revolutionary justice, as you're kind of touching on, Kalia, because that was the tension in most of these organizing groups, is that they had an interest in reform and reworking these carceral systems and, and you know, engaging with policies that only seek to decrease caging instead of actually abolishing it and increasing surveillance, increasing militarism, while we were seeking to end 
violence totally. And so like, those are very different visions when we talk about revolutionary justice. That's like, you know, as Linkson, he says, cutting to the rotten core of a genocidal system and really taking steps to rebuild a new world based on our ancestral values and compassion and self-defense of the common people rather than just the state and corporations. And it was just very validating to like read that again, just breathing life to the militancy because we know that it's just been a struggle working with a lot of these folks who just are not willing to accept the obligation to develop a radical imagination. Yeah, and this idea that the state has a monopoly on violence, that piece is something that we have talked a lot about, I think, throughout the summer. For me, with my organizing comrades, it's something that we always say, right, where the police have a monopoly on violence. But this idea of normalizing the need for militancy and seeing that as necessary. Because what we learn here is that the Black Panther Party had their guns for self-defense, but this book really dives into, there was the Black Panther Party, but there was also the Black Liberation Army. And that those groups, had they worked together in tandem, may have achieved larger gains. And so just normalizing that need for that component of a movement. Yeah. And when I was reading that and those two bodies working together in tandem, that's when I saw immediately what our deficiencies were in our movement currently and what we needed to be able to learn, to build, as well as put into action right now. But that was the thing is that we wanted so much action, but we had not yet built any type of army. We hadn't trained any type of army. And we also haven't learned how to cooperate with one one another on anything, the small task, much less these larger ones that are going to really defend our lives. Yes. When we talk about self-defense and mutual aid, just realizing that those two terms are almost synonymous. And that's really a thing that this book touches on that, you know, a lot of the times people say, what are we going to do after police? And if we abolish the state, but This book sets up that framework that, you know, we're working towards networks of councils and communes that are dedicated to self-defense, which is the ways that we make sure that nobody is impoverished and living without housing or food or water, taking care of the earth. And just understanding that monopoly that the state has on protection is the reason why they're able to validate all their abuse, because they're like, you know, I, I protect you, so you need me. But when we realize that they're actually the ones who are the main perpetrators of all the violence globally, not just domestically, then we can start to say, okay, how are the ways that we're actually like showing up for our communities in a much more effective manner? And like, we can look around and see that so many organizations, even right here in Richmond, are already doing that work better than the cops. Yeah. And just understanding that we have to see these efforts as valid and essential, that we need to be working outside of the state, both with mutual aid and making sure that people's needs are met, but also that that need of protection is met as something that we're prioritizing. And this book gave us examples from the past, whether it was the Maroon communities, who we know set up sites of resistance They were also a social organization in the U.S. that was looking to actually get rid of white supremacy, not just be free and survive, but to really get rid of white supremacy. These are societies that existed pre-Civil War that were staging guerrilla actions and providing a network of support that worked very much outside of the state. To me, that was just like, you know, it's in our blood to work for our freedom and thrive. And that was the another great part of this, again, 
80 page book was the references to the past that you can go and look up. That's all I was doing. I remember looking up so many of these movements, things I had not heard of before. And it was, these are the stories. This is the public memory that we need. And speaking of these stories and of the land and of the councils, the neighborhood councils, it reminded me of how precious our neighborhoods have to be and how we have to be able to maintain in our homes on our land. That's how we maintain our community and our network of support. And if we are pushed out, if we do not have any claim or autonomy over our home, then we lose this connection, that leadership, that support, that mutual aid. So when we talk about evictions, if we have something like burn the American plantation down in our brain, we can also understand how evictions is just a greater piece of white supremacy to dilute our community power and security. Yeah. And I just want to touch on community support. Because when we think about how radical thought like this gets lost, it's because we don't have that community support so consistently that is defending youth organizers, radical Black youth organizers who who are advocating for these things. When we think about RAM, who is made up of mostly college-educated kids, dropouts, who dropped out to organize full-time. You know, we see that same parallels right here in Richmond, people dropping out of from BCU, from BUU, NSU, VSU, all over, you know, people dropping out all across the state to dedicate their life to the movement and housing and establishing food co-ops. And it's so powerful, but there's so, there's not that there's so little support there because there is a lot of support, but, you know, we, we really come under a lot of scrutiny and surveillance and violence from the state and uh, white supremacists locally. And not a lot of time, um, you know, we have the support to continue to to speak out in the ways that really affect change. And I think it's really interesting, you know, that this kind of work can be produced by the youth and end up being buried just because of a, a lack of community support and protection. And this book calls us as organizers, as people, as a part of this movement, to chart out our political intentions, our goals, and our vision of where we're going forward so that we don't have to be on that defense indefinitely because we know that that just isn't going to sustain, right? And so for me, I've just been thinking so much about what that looks like in Richmond and also for the larger movement for Black Lives. What does it look like for us post-election now to chart our course outside of this two-party system, knowing that we're not going to have the full election results likely until December, once the electorates decide. What does it mean for us to come together and create a larger vision that centers abolition and getting rid of these carceral systems? And I don't know about y'all, but I don't think that folks are really having that conversation the way we need to. No, not at all. We've forgotten that the quote-unquote democracy is supposed to be representative and therefore the officials are supposed to do what we say. And if we are organizing and we are building our own communities and our own securities, and we say, this is what we need from you all, then that's what they're supposed to do. And that's not going to be building new prisons. That's going to not going to be continue to lock us up. But if we have our own and we are autonomous, then they have no other choice but to listen to us. It's all about really being open to the ways that we get to that autonomy, you know, looking back to invalidating all of the methods of resistance that have been used by our ancestors in the past and the present. And look what, you know, folks are doing internationally. We have folks who are voting in their elections, but also burning down buildings that represent 
some symbols of oppression and slavery. You know, this is happening all across the global South in Central America and Africa and Europe. It's happening everywhere. And so we have to be ready to accept that, you know, there are many, many ways to resist and they don't start and end with the electorate. And I think that this election is, is really going to open a lot of folks' eyes as, you know, tw- tw- the 2016 election really opened a lot of folks' eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's most salient to me from this reading is this need to take a feminist lens. Of course, I would argue a Black queer feminist lens to liberation. And the Zapatistas and lots of other examples have we seen that the armed militias were armed feminist militias. And just from my own study, especially of Latin American struggle, you know, in Colombia, other places, they're strapping up the feminists to fight this battle. It's it was folks like Fannie Lou, like Harriet, that were on the front lines here in the U.S. being generals of wars, right? Giving intel to people that needed it and actually fighting battles. Even now, right, where this week we've seen people get almost shot where Trump trains are going all over the country and there's likely to be mass mobilizations and unrest around this transition of power or whatever this is in our country. I'm just thinking about the need to center Black feminist arm work. And that also means that we have to protect those of us who are most vulnerable on these front lines. And these are lessons I just don't know that we've learned from this summer And so I'm just thinking about that. Because I think a a whole principle in this book is towards the abolition of gender, right? And that right there is something that a lot of people just need to sit in and hear over and over, look at it in bold and just sit on it. And like you said, many lessons that we didn't learn from this summer, I would even say that I wonder how much we've opened minds to even being ready for some of these conversations. But I'm hoping that again, after the summer, after the election, after 2021, the new year starts, maybe people can really understand that we need an abolition of a complete thought, not just a one sector or one issue, the way that we're organizing now. And how do we get them there is really the question. How do we get ourselves there? It's really it's a a large, complicated, messy process to unlearn that dependency on the state. And it can be really overwhelming to think about everything that we need to do to be able to live autonomously. But, you know, that's why supremacy, them trying to trick us into thinking that we can't do it when our ancestors did it for centuries. And so learning and, and trying to remember how we get back to that and really having collective history and a collective shared vision. I'm looking forward to it because I do think that, you know, people are lacking in in some areas of analysis, but, you know, really we haven't been trained to think critically analyze things. And so I've really been trying to center being patient and like being dedicated to having a three hour long conversation, if that's what it needs to be, because look, we got, we got plantations to burn down. We got, we got things to reclaim. I do think that a rev- social revolution is approaching quicker than people would like to believe, but that's okay. Cause they're going to see it for themselves soon. And this book talks a lot about from self-emancipation to organization. And that's really where we are. And that's where so many people are finding themselves right now is when they're starting to see and set their minds free that they need a place to organize. 
And it's really kind of dope that so many people are coming together right here in this place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia. And we're hoping that you all as Race Capital listeners are joining us. This book really lays out good operating principles for folks to take back to their affinity groups, to their organizations, whether you're joining an existing one or creating something new. These principles, I think, are something that all of us could learn something from, including expressing solidarity with all oppressed people, supporting other revolutionary anti-state political organizations, encouraging a diversity of tactics, utilizing direct action and mutual aid, and supporting our fighters, such as our political prisoners and those who have been injured or in legal trouble based on their work in the revolution, and not collaborating with law enforcement, nonprofits, or government. And they lay out a lot of good security tips as well for us, like continuing to be anonymous unless y'all decide collectively, being wary of shady journalists, and safeguarding information about others, and of course, most importantly, keeping disagreements out of public forums for the good of our work and not discrediting it. And so I think that this is something that all of us, like this book is available PDF online and we will put it in the description of this episode. But at the very least, these principles, as we're joining, as we're leading, we need to be going with principles that we can believe in. I think we should expand upon what is even meant by the American plantation. Oh, you know, that's funny because that you speak on that point because I was going to say we haven't even brought up capitalism at all and how because we are still not autonomous in our good services land the way that we feed ourselves the way that we survive we're still on a plantation because we are very dependent on so much but also this plantation because as we mentioned in the beginning that slavery has not actually ended that dependency is on purpose right it's the way that the state purposely weakens our communities by taking by divesting from them by incarcerating them by criminalizing them so that they can make sure that we're disciplined enough to work for them and keep ourselves in line and in check and that they can have a monopoly over our labor really And so when we say the American plantation, that's basically what we're talking about our society now. You know, people like to think of slavery as a past, but we really have to begin to continue to talk about it in a present sense that it is now. It wasn't before. Abolition wasn't then. It is now. All these things still exist in the current sense. When we even think about caste systems, you know, I think about where my parents were when they were 20 and where I am and the fact that we have the same occupations, but, you know, it's expected that if you come from a middle-class background, then in your lifetime as a middle-class child, you'll, you're likely to become low, low income. And so like just thinking about, you know, the ways that not much has changed. If you look down your family history, are you all doing the same exact thing, like money continuing to leave, generational trauma continuing to percolate, incarceration infecting people? That's what we mean by the plantation, just all consumed, uh, like our lives really being consumed by the state, no real capacity for opportunity, freedom, or a real future. 
And, you know, also talking about the plantation, a couple episodes ago, we had Peter Radcliffe on here and he was talking about the history of right here, Richmond, Virginia, during enslavement, where people would not live on their slaveholders' land. They would live off of the plantation and satellite in their own communities. And I still tell that story to remind people of how different is it today. We may not live right on Tom Farrell's land, right? But we are still a slave to the to the labor. We still have to pay that dominion. We have no other choice but to pay dominion. And that goes into how we are living now and how we are organized right now is not much different than how society was organized prior to 1865. And think about like when you're evicted, the way that you can go nowhere because th- there's no part of the land that we are we have own- shared ownership in. The state has control of everything. So it's like, even if you're standing on the side of the road, that's criminal. Even if you're under the bridge, that's criminal. Literally, we are on a plantation, you know, that's plantation-like. The fact that we have nowhere to call our own, we don't own our house, we don't own our car, we don't own our cell phones. Plantation, y'all. Might as well be sharecropping at best. And speaking of the plantation, it's most apparent now in the middle of a pandemic where our government, where our leadership, their priority has been to open the country and keep so-called essential workers working because we know that our labor has produced this country and it keeps it going. They haven't been able to do anything, right? Like, we've just had to continue to work. The plantation is still producing. It's just not cotton that we're producing anymore. And so at what point do we decide that we're done, that we're hearing the spiritual? It's time to trouble the water, and we have to get free. Because for me, I'm, I'm finding it hard when a lot of folks want to turn back and stay on the plantation. And I'm ready to be free of this, that I know that our vote is not going to get us free that they turned folks away all day at the polls, that they invalidated people with felonies for, for decades. And so that was not our ticket to freedom. So how are we going to achieve it now, knowing that reality? Right. And even knowing for me, it's more so the reality of knowing that because for so many centuries, our ancestors have not had a say in the representation in this country. Every U.S. election has been a coup. Since every indigenous sovereign uh, body has never consented to the U.S.'s occupation, every election is a coup. And knowing that and seeing the way that that has played out, you know, us having zero say and our our voices being purposely si- silenced, it's just, for me, I got, I got to try something different. Insanity is literally trying the same thing over and over again and getting the same results. And We've been trying it for a minute, you know, a lot of these people, when we talk about the plantation, you know, they're that slave that was like, what if we just go talk to Massa? What if we just go negotiate with the overseer? You know, that's what reform sounds like. And I don't think that that's going to work. I mean, I don't think that it's proven to work thus far. And that's where this concept of expropriation comes into play, that it has its historical roots in our own history as abolitionists. But that means expropriating our labor which is wealth, expropriating the things that belong to us that we are tired of asking for. Come on. It's reparations time. That's not going to come in the form of a stimulus bill from the government or from the government at all. So when we're talking about funding systems of care and 
moving away from the police and carceral state, I think we really need to look to expropriation, what that looks like as a tactic that we need to be putting into place. And that's already happening. We just need to capitalize on. Answer the question, burn down the American plantation and replace it with what? That's, that's the question that we need to visualize an answer to. It's approach to that moment. And this book helps us imagine it. Yes. And so to all of our listeners, if you're hearing our episode today, we want to hear your answer to this. Burn down the American plantation and replace it with what? DM us, reach out to us, let us know what does that vision look like for you when we burn down the plantation? You know, Fred Hampton said it best. If you dare to struggle, you dare to win. And I know a lot of people who've been struggling. So we're going to win. <laughs> we <all> know it. <laughs> Those who fought for liberation here in the U.S. have left an important legacy. As we dig the trenches of our struggle, we draw from the lessons of this past and proudly carry on the struggle in the memory of our fighters. It is their sacrifices that will propel us to the next stage of the struggle and the resurgence of their fortitude and bravery that invigorates our commitments. We promise to all those who have previously risked everything for liberation, who have lived and died under the oppressive yoke of this country and all those still struggling for a better life, that we will put all our strength towards building communities so powerful that they will repel any attempt from within or without to reestablish the oppressive power of white supremacy, patriarchy, the state, and capital. We will burn down the American plantation once and for all. I'm the deputy chairman of the state of Illinois, Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton. And uh, a lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's uh, relationship with white mother country radicals, a lot of people don't even understand that word that they're refusing a lot. But what we're saying is that there are white people in the mother country that are for the same type of thing that we are for stimulating revolution in the, in the mother country. And we said that we will work with anybody and form coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used for capitalism. And we know that racism is just it's, it's a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. And we're going to have to put it back in the hands of the people. Everybody in the state of Illinois is going to have to be involved or even around the revolution because we're going to have one. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to do more than talk. We're going to have to do more than listen. We're going to even have to do more than learn. We're going to have to start practicing, and that's very hard. We're going to have to start learning, and you learn through practice. We got to start making mistakes, and you learn through making mistakes. We got to start getting out there with the people. And a lot of times we think we're better than the people, but that's an insult and that's criminal. Think you're better than the people. We got to get together and learn where it's at. It's going to take a lot of hard work. We have breakfast for children because we teach the people through practice, through observation and participation, that people can be fair free. That's the people's thing. Socialism is the people. You're afraid of yourself. If you're afraid of socialism, you're afraid of yourself. We know they have our pictures. We know they're looking for us. We know they want us. But we're still saying that even though we could be in a sense, as far as this system goes, on the mountaintop, 
We in the Black Panther Party because of our dedication and understanding what's in the valley, knowing that the people in the valley, knowing that we originally came from the valley, knowing that our flag is the same flag as the people in the valley, knowing that our enemy is on the mountaintop, our friends are in the valley. We say even though it's nice to be on the mountaintop, we're going back to the valley. I'd be in the office every day. I'd be in the streets propagandizing every day. I'd be working with everybody every day. I'd be teaching that solidarity is the thing. The end of a complete wipeout of imperialism is the thing. So if you're going to be thinking about me, that's what Bobby would be teaching. If you're going to be thinking about us, all we say is we don't, ain't no thing about going nowhere, getting killed. All we want to know is that you're doing what we'd be doing if we were here. And you've got to do that. You can't do it unless you believe that you can do it. In the spirit of liberation, we understand that they want everybody in the party in jail. And we know that if we try to figure out and liberate and divide who should go and who shouldn't go, we spend more time doing that and working for the people. So the quick solution, the speedy one, nobody go. Nobody go. We all stay right here. With the people. Because we love the people. See that band all dressed in white. Gods are gonna trouble the water. The leader looks like the Israelite. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Ooh, wait, wait in the water. Oh, wait. wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God is gonna trouble. Gods are gonna yeah. trouble the water. Oh. See that band all dressed in red. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Ooh, it looks like the band that Moses led. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Oh, 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 God is gonna trouble the water. God's gonna trouble the water. There's healing in the water. Yeah, 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 yeah. Deliverance in the water. Trouble the water. My God is gonna trouble, gonna trouble the water.